clear, counteracting hostile suggestion, the British official organizations are comparatively ineffective. But what is lacking officially is very largely made up for by the goodwill and generous efforts of the English and American press. An interesting monograph might be written upon these various attempts of the belligerents to get themselves and their proceedings explained. Because there is perceptible in these developments quite over and above the desire to influence opinion, a very real effort to get things explained. It is the most interesting and curious, one might almost write touching, feature of these organizations that they do not constitute a positive and defined propaganda, such as the Germans maintain. The German propaganda is simple because its ends are simple. Assertions of the moral elevation and loveliness of Germany, of the insuperable excellences of German culture, the Kaiser and Crown Prince, and so forth. Abuse of the treacherous English who allied themselves with the degenerate French and the barbaric Russians. Nonsense about the freedom of the seas, the emptiest phrase in history. Childish attempts to sow suspicion between the Allies, and still more childish attempts to induce neutrals and simple-minded pacifists of Allied nationality to save the face of Germany by initiating peace negotiations. But apart from their steady record and reminder of German brutalities and German aggression, the press organizations of the Allies have none of this definiteness in their task. The aim of the national intelligence in each of the Allied countries is not to exalt one's own nation and confuse and divide the enemy, but to get a real understanding with the peoples and spirits of a number of different nations an understanding that will increase and become a fruitful and permanent understanding between the Allied peoples. Neither the English, the Russians, the Italians, nor the French, to name only the bigger European allies, are concerned in setting up a legend, as the Germans are concerned in setting up a legend of themselves to impose upon mankind. They are reality dealers in this war, and the Germans are effigy mongers. Practically, the Allies are saying each to one another, Pray, come to me and see for yourselves that I am very much the human stuff that you are. Come and see that I am doing my best, and I think that is not so very bad a best. And with that is something else still more subtle, something rather in the form of, And please, tell me what you think of me and all this. So we have this curious by-play of the war, and one day I find Mr. Nabokov, the editor of The Wretch, and Count Alexei Tolstoy, that writer of delicate short stories, and Mr. Tchaikovsky, the subtle critic, calling in upon me after braving the wintry seas to see the British fleet. M. Joseph Reinach follows them presently upon the same errand, and then appear photographs of Mr. Arnold Bennett wading in the trenches of Flanders. Mr. Noyes becomes discreetly indiscreet about what he has seen among the submarines, and Mr. Hugh Walpole catches things from Mr. Stephen Graham in the dark forest of Russia. All this is quite over and above such writing of facts as first-hand as Mr. Patrick McGill and a dozen other real experiencing soldiers, not to mention the soldiers' letters Mr. James Milne has collected, or the unforgettable and immortal prisoner of war of Mr. Arthur Green or such admirable war correspondence work as Mr. Philip Gibbs or Mr. Washburn has done. 
Some of us writers, I can answer for one, have made our tour of the France in a very understandable diffidence. For my own part, I did not want to go. I evaded a suggestion that I should go in 1915. I travelled badly. I speak French and Italian with incredible atrocity, and am an extreme pacifist. I hate soldiering, and also I do not want to write anything under instruction. It is largely owing to a certain stiffness in the composition of General Delm Radcliffe is resolved that Italy shall not feel neglected by the refusal of the invitation from the Commander Supremo by any one who, from the perspective of Italy, may seem to be a representative of British opinion. If Herbert Spencer had been alive, General Radcliffe would have certainly made him come, travelling hammock, earclips, and all. And I am not above confessing that I wish that Herbert Spencer was alive for this purpose. I found Eudine warm and gay with memories of Mr. Belloc, Lord Northcliffe, Mr. Sidney Lowe, Colonel Rappington, and Dr. Conan Doyle, and anticipating the arrival of Mr. Harold Cox. So we pass mostly in automobiles that bump tremendously over war roads, a cloud of witnesses, each testifying after his manner. Whatever else has happened, we have all been photographed with invincible patience and resolution under the direction of Colonel Barbaric, in a sunny little court in Udine. My own manner of testifying must be to tell what I have seen and what I have thought during this extraordinary experience. It has been my natural disposition to see this war as something purposeful and epic, as it is great, as an epic, as the war that will end war. But of the last, more anon, I do not think I am alone in this inclination to a dramatic and logical interpretation. The caricatures in the French shops show civilization, and particularly Marianne, in conflict with a huge and hugely wicked Hindenburg ogre. Well, I come back from this tour with something not so simple as that. If I were to be tied down to one word for my impression of this war. I should say that this war is queer. It is not like anything in a real waking world, but like something in a dream. It hasn't exactly that clearness of light against darkness or of good against ill, but it has a quality of wholesome instinct struggling under a nightmare. The world is not really awake. This vague appeal for explanation to all sorts of people, this desire to exhibit the business, to get something in the way of elucidation at present missing. Is extraordinarily suggestive of the efforts of the mind to wake up that will sometimes occur at a deep crisis. My memory of this tour I have just made is full of puzzled-looking men. I have seen thousands of poilus sitting about in cafes by the roadside in tents, in trenches, thoughtful. I have seen Alpini sitting restfully and staring with speculative eyes across the mountain gulfs toward unseen and unaccountable enemies. I have seen trainloads of wounded staring out of the ambulance train windows as we passed. I have seen these dim intimations of questioning reflection in the strangest juxtapositions. In Malagasy, soldiers resting for a spell among the big shells they were hoisting into trucks for the front, and a couple of khaki-clad Maoris. Sitting upon the step of a horse van in Amiens station, it is always the same expression one catches: rather weary, rather sullen, interned. The shoulders droop, 
The very outline is a note of interrogation. They look up as a privileged tourist of the front in the big automobile or the reserved compartment with his officer so in charge passes. Importantly, one meets a pair of eyes that seem to say, "Perhaps you understand." In which case, it is a part, I think, of this disposition to investigate what makes everyone collect specimens of the war. Everywhere, the souvenir forces itself upon the attention. The homecoming permissionnaire brings with him invariably a considerable weight of broken objects, bits of shell, cartridge clips, helmets. It is a peripatetic museum. It is as if he hoped for a clue. It's almost impossible. I have found to escape those pieces in evidence. I am the least collecting of men, but I have brought home Italian cartridges, Austrian cartridges, the fuse of an Austrian shell, a broken Italian bayonet, and a note that is worth half a franc within the confines of Amiens. But a large, heavy piece of exploded shell that had been thrust very urgently upon my attention upon the Carso. I contrived to lose during the temporary confusion of our party by the arrival and explosion of another prospective souvenir in our close proximity, and two really very large and almost complete specimens of some species of ammonites are known to me, from the hills of the east of the Adige, partially wrapped in a back number of the Corriere della Sera, that were pressed upon me by a friendly officer, who unfortunately lost on the line between Verona and Milan. Through the gross negligence of a railway porter, but I doubt if they would have thrown any very conclusive light upon the war. I avow myself an extreme pacifist. I am against the man who first takes up the weapon. I carry my pacifism far beyond the ambiguous little group of British and foreign sentimentalists who pretend so amusingly to be socialists in the Labour leader. Whose conception of foreign policy is to give Germany now a peace that would be no more than a breathing time for a fresh outrage upon civilization, and who would even make heroes of the crazy young assassins of the Dublin crime? I do not understand those people. I do not merely want to stop this war. I want to nail down war in its coffin. Modern war is an intolerable thing. It is not a thing to trifle with in this urban district council way. It is a thing to end forever. I have always hated it. So far, that is as my imagination enabled me to realize it, and now that I have been seeing it, sometimes quite closely for a full month, I hate it more than ever. I never imagined a quarter of its waste, its boredom, its futility, its desolation. It is merely a destructive and dispersive, instead of a constructive and accumulative industrialism. It is a gigantic, dusty, muddy, weedy, blood-stained silliness. It is the plain duty of every man to give his life and all that he has, if by so doing he may help to end it. I hate Germany, which has thrust this experience upon mankind, as I hate some horrible infectious disease. The new war, the war on the modern level, is her invention and her crime. I perceive that on our side and in its broad outlines, this war is nothing more than a gigantic and heroic effort in sanitary engineering, an effort to remove German militarism from the life and regions it has invaded, and to bank it in and discredit and enfeeble it, so that never more will it repeat its present preposterous and horrible efforts. 
All human affairs and all great affairs have their reservations and their complications, but that is the broad outline of the business as it has impressed itself on my mind and as I find it conceived in the mind of the average man of the reading class among the Allied peoples, and as I find it understood in the judgment of honest and intelligent neutral observers. It is my unshakable belief that, essentially, the Allies fight for a permanent world peace, that primarily they do not make war but resist war, that has reconciled me to this not very congenial experience of touring as a spectator, all agog to see, through the war zones. At any rate, there was never any risk of my playing Malam and blessing the enemy. This war was tragedy and sacrifice for most of the world, for the Germans... It is simply the catastrophic outcome of fifty years of elaborate intellectual foolery, militarism, welt politic, and here we are. What else could have happened with Michael and his infernal war machine in the very centre of Europe but this tremendous disaster? It is a disaster. It may be a necessary disaster. It may teach a lesson that could be learnt in no other way, but for all that, I insist, it remains waste, disorder disaster. There is a disposition I know in myself as well as in others to wriggle away from this verity, to find so much good in the collapse that has come to the mad direction of Europe for the past half-century as to make it on the whole almost a beneficial thing, but at most I can find in it no greater good than the good of a nightmare that awakens the sleeper in a dangerous place to a realization of the extreme danger of his sleep. Better had he been awake." never there. In Venetia, Captain Pirelli, whose task it was to keep me out of mischief in the war zone, was insistent upon the way in which all Venetia was being opened up by the new military roads. There has been scarcely a new road made in Venetia since Napoleon drove his straight, poplar-bordered highways through the land. M. Joseph Reinach, who was my companion upon the French front, was equally impressed by the stirring up and exchange of ideas in the villages due to the movement of the war. Charles Lamb's story of the discovery of roast pork comes into one's head with an effect of repartee. More than ideas are exchanged in the war zone, and it is doubtful how far the sanitary precautions of the military authorities avails against a considerable propaganda of disease. A more serious argument for the good of war is that it evokes heroic qualities, that it has brought out almost incredible quantities of courage, devotion, and individual romance that did not show in the suffocating peacetime that preceded the war. The reckless and beautiful zeal of the women in the British and French munition factories, for example, the gaiety and fearlessness of the common soldiers everywhere, these things have always been there, like champagne sleeping.